time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program, and my uh, my guest this hour has uh, spent his medical career with people facing serious illness and death, first as an oncologist, then as a hospice physician. He is the author of a new book called Dying with Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions. His name is Dr. Jeff Spees. He joins me by phone. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here. Um, This is something that uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about, but probably should talk about. Um, How do you encourage people to address this issue that is, for some people, really quite frightening. Yeah, I I, I don't have a a trick uh, because people uh, think about their own mortality when they get around to it, uh, and I think that we suffer because of that. So what's the trick? Well, I think the trick is to gradually get there. Um, For example, one exercise I suggest people do uh, when they get out of the shower is look at your belly button and remember why you have a belly button. You have a belly button that you can see in the mirror, unless you're like some of us and you haven't seen it for a while, um, uh, the, uh, uh, because that shows that you were born. And everybody with a belly button will die. And that little belly button there is a reminder that you will die it's probably the most important thing you will ever do in your life outside of being born. Um, and you want to do it well. So uh, whether you're performance-oriented and want to just do a good job and you get around to dying, uh, whether you've experienced with a family member or a friend somebody going through something and thought, man, I don't want to do that, or whether you're just a take-charge kind of person, as those of us in the boomer generation tend to be, um, and want things to go the way you want when you get to that time. It's a major event. You will go through it, and you want to do it well. 
so I, I think that's the the bottom line. There's yeah. there's that uh, that that famous quote, uh, um, a, an actor I believe who said, uh, "Dying is easy, comedy is hard." Um, yeah. <laughs> is is death different for everybody? So I think, and I I, I guess so. Here's the here the honest answer, of course, is. I don't know because I haven't died, um, and none of us know. So I, I think death itself is probably about the same. You're alive one second, you're dead the next. I think dying is unique to in, in each individual because we bring with it who we are, how we were raised, what our values are, what we're afraid of, what our hopes are, what our goals are. Um, what health insurance we, we have. What health insurance we have? Uh, one wishes that wasn't a big issue, but uh, it is. It, it is reality. Yes, yes. Um, so I, you know, sometimes uh, the dying experience is the peaceful, dignified end of life that we most Americans say that they want, and sometimes it's screaming and and crying, um, and. And sometimes it's sudden, and you don't get a you don't get a warning. So I, I think that there are as many dying trajectories or dying experiences as there are people. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. I wonder if the experience is different from person to person, uh, uh, depending on all kinds of factors. People who, you know, there are people who die with friends and family around them, you know, mm -hmm. comfortably at home. There are, um, you know, some that, uh, uh, you know, end up uh, alone in a in a hospital or in hospice or something, um, and and then there's you know people get run down by a bus, but it's mm -hmm. it's um, a different experience for for individuals. What about quality of life? We hear about that a lot. Um, and, and what does that mean in real life and death? That's, that is the question, um, because the answer, uh, just like the death, is the answer is nobody really knows. So there have been so many studies done looking at what does quality of life look like, especially quality of life for someone who is seriously or potentially terminally ill. What does that look like? And there are some things that seem to be mostly universal, uh, that quality of life is a life uh, without too much pain or other physical symptoms, that quality of life is maintaining function as much as possible, um, being able to uh, take care of one's own personal needs, um, as opposed to having to sit in a dirty diaper waiting, waiting for someone to come and change it. The quality of life is, uh, I think, being who you are as much as you can be. Um, and one kicker about that is, now I'm going to get a little too philosophical maybe, uh, is that you have to know who you are. Um, if you want quality of life, especially as your life is drawing to a close, you have to plan for it. So, so there was an interesting, um, the first time I, I, I saw anybody 
take this little poll. I remember, because it was 9-11, uh, I was in the clinic. Uh, this was when I was at the University of Iowa, and I was in the oncology clinic, and we started he hearing snippets about horrible things happening in New York and Washington and then Pennsylvania. And the, the, even though we had to keep on going with our cancer patients in clinic, the conversation changed in the uh, kind of clinic charting uh, conference room. And one of the questions that came up that day was, is this a good way to go? Is being snuffed out immediately quality of dying? Now, I realize well, now we're talking about dying rather than living. Or is it better? The example I use and most in our generation, Tom, know this example, is Melanie Hamilton Wilkes. Melanie Hamilton Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, when she is dying, she's laying pristinely clean in a feather bed, and family members kind of march in and, and say their goodbyes, and she wishes them all well, and, and it's such a beautiful a, a beautiful scene. Full she makeup and done. hair done. Full makeup, the whole thing. I'm <laughs> sure it didn't smell a bit. <laughs> Not horribly realistic, but it's that image. Which is better? And when you do little hand-raising surveys, it tends to be about half and half. People who say, I would rather be alive one second and gone the next. The heart attack, whatever, the hit by a bus. The, about the other half say, no, I'd rather know because then I could do the work I need to do. When people get to that point, they almost always want that. They want the time because they realize that time is all they've got, and, and it's important to, to spend it wisely. Um, that isn't quite, wasn't really quite the answer to, to what you were looking for. No, no, no. That, that gets into something very important because I would guess that a lot of people would prefer, as, as my father did, to die in their sleep. Mm -hmm. So, so um, that's what we always think. Yeah, that's the ideal. And, it prob and I think for the person who is dying, that probably is the best. Um, I, would, I would assume for me, you know, to go to bed comfortably and, not, and wake up dead. Um, my dad, I should have asked him that because my father died twice. My father had a sudden cardiac event while uh, driving. He was actually at a stop sign and was resuscitated and uh, on a ventilator, all this stuff, and recovered. And later, it was about eight years later, he died of a gradually declining health and died in bed with his family surrounding him. I don't know that I ever would have asked him which did he like better since he did it twice. I, I, don't, I don't know what he would have said. I think he would have said he preferred the second because he cherished all the time that he had. And after his, his sudden death experience, he seemed to cherish people and relationships more than he had before. Um, one thing that the dying um, have taught me, loud and clear and in living color, is that learning how to die teaches us how to live. And that teaches us what is most important, and that's really what quality of life is, is being able to live with what's most important. And what the dying teaches most important is relationships, dignity, forgiveness, um, love, um, and if you want to have that 
kind of experience when you're getting to that point. You have to plan for it ahead. And um, I guess that may get into a little bit more of, a, of another subject that we don't have to go to right now. But, uh, but I, I think that that is the, the message, the message of my book. It's the, and the reason I came to this in writing the book wasn't because I was some kind of missionary that needed to beat people over the head to see that they were dying. It's just after years and years of sitting at the bedside, listening to people, learning from what people taught me, I saw over and over and over again mistakes that were made. And a lot of the mistakes are doctor mistakes and medical system mistakes by denying people the opportunity to recognize that they were at that point in their life and it was time to really have an honest conversation. That gets back to actually my my one of my early questions was uh, or observations is that it's something that we don't talk about um, right that we don't want to talk about but should probably talk about more which is uh, kind of what your book is about think about this ahead of time and and make uh, wiser end-of-life decisions um, is there a sense um, you mentioned the 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 movie death and we've all seen that mm -hmm. you know very um you know very much like the the gone with the wind example and and we see that and we think of that and that becomes sort of the model to emulate but very few mm -hmm. uh probably do emulate that you've seen you've seen real death in in uh and and seen it in lots of uh cases and examples um does does a lot of the 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 end of life stuff you mentioned uh people having business to take care of is is one of the most important things saying goodbye you know it's it, yes it it is it is so i'm going to uh, plagiarize a moment um uh a uh, quote from from one of the first books of the Think About Your Dying Genre, and this was a, a book called Dying Well, written by Dr. Ira Bayak uh, back in the 90s. And Dr. Bayak, uh, in his work with the, with the dying, identified the work that needs to be done. Um, this has been modified a lot since then, but I like his, the original because it's succinct and, and easy to remember. And he saw that that from his work with the dying, that everyone who is approaching the end of life, the end of their lives has jobs to do. And he identified these jobs as things that need to be said. And the, these were five, five statements that he said, uh, we all need to say before we die. And they are, forgive me, I forgive you, I love you, thank you, and goodbye. And if you stop for a second, we, those questions resonate with all of us because as you hear those questions, I forgive me, I forgive you. Jeff, I, love I, have, you. I have to yeah. interrupt here because we have to go to break. Can you stick around so we can oh, talk sorry. some more? Oh, I can stick around. Thank all right, you. we'll be right back. Doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Fabulous 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff Snareplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, the author of Dying with Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions, Dr. Jeff Spies. Uh, Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, no problem. But by the way, I, I, I kind of love the breaks. You got great music on your uh, on, on your breaks there. <laughs> thanks for letting me listen to it. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, when I cut you off a little bit when we went to break. I was so caught up in the conversation, uh, Jeff, that, and that happens to me once in a while. I forget to watch the clock. Um, but you were talking about the four, I think it was four things, might have been five, that, that are the work of dying. Um, and and right. uh, we can pick it up there. Right, we can. We can. And, and just, I... I, I uh, can get a little caught up too, and I'm starting to sermonize a bit, so it's so probably good that I got caught up. But those those uh, five uh, statements: the uh, uh, "forgive me," "I forgive you," "I love you," "thank you," and "goodbye." When you think about hear those statements, and you think of someone you need to say those things to, and you realize that that's going to take some time because sometimes these are people from way back. Sometimes these are people that are no longer alive. And it takes energy. And when you're at the very end of your life, those are two things you don't have. So in order to do that piece of your life well, you have to know that it's going to come and maybe do some of the work ahead of time. Of course, uh, people who study personality and psychology would say, well, those are five things that we need to be saying all the time. And if we did it, why should we wait till the end of our lives? We would live better and happier uh, if if we did those things. Um, So that's just, again, one of the points that if you want to have a good ending, you need to do a little bit of work ahead of time. Now, we all know this um, because I would guess that most of your listeners, I hope that most of your listeners have an estate plan, have made a will or uh, done, done some kind of uh, plan for who gets their stuff after they're gone. Um, uh, I would hope that most, although there's probably fewer of them, have made advanced directives, have executed a living will or a health care proxy or health care power of attorney, um, uh, healthcare decision maker, those um, uh, advanced directive documents, and those are important and they're critical, and that's really, really good and they're essential, but they're not enough, um, because what really becomes important as people close their lives is the inside stuff. It's the guilt and the fear and the hopes. And sometimes it's the anger, especially if things move along kind of fast and nobody's had the honest conversations. A lot of people are very angry when they get to this part of their lives uh, or shocked that it is happening. You know, I keep referring so, to quality of life when I think I mean quality of death. How, how much of, of, quote, quality of death is is pain management and and what are the ethical considerations so so 
pain management is essential um, because without it, nothing else can happen. You can't, it is really hard to have a tough conversation to reconcile with your son who was estranged 30 years ago. Uh, how do you have that conversation if you're writhing in pain? You can't. So that pain management is is critical. Pain management brings up a bunch of a bunch of issues, and the opioid crisis didn't help that at all. Um, the I think that we are all believe that someone close to the end of their life or someone suffering from unremitting pain from a disease that is going to kill them ought to be relieved of their pain when it can happen it can almost always happen there are some ethical issues um the ethical issues of well what if the what about the side effects of the the uh, opioid uh, pain management drugs what if the drugs make you too sleepy or what if they make you nauseated and you can't eat um it's really pretty clear, though, that those things can be handled, that uh, with smarts, uh, and that's really what I rely on my good hospice and palliative care doctor colleagues, you can manage those, those physical symptoms most of the time. And that is essential because then it lets you get to the hard stuff, uh, which is the fear and the anger and stuff like that. The... Go ahead. The, um, yeah. So, so one of the things that I that I learned, and this wasn't from a dying person. This was from a spiritual care uh, a champ, a chaplain, hospice chaplain, who gave a, a talk that I sat in on over twenty years ago. He's since become a very good friend. Um, in which he did an exercise that takes the listener through being a healthy person, getting a, term, a serious diagnosis, having treatment that may work, may not for a while, but eventually end up at the end of your life and dying from the illness. And he did it with a, uh, the metaphor of sequential losses, because one thing that happens when we die is we lose everything. Uh, nobody takes anything with them. So you lose, and that includes people. So this was a, a, an exercise that really changed the way I thought about um, caring for the dying and working with the dying because it helped put me in those shoes. One thing that I've, I've, I've used that exercise multiple times in conferences, and I tried to adapt it. I, I think it's successful. I'll wait for the readers to tell me. In, in my book, because I think that if that that's what keeps us from thinking about dying is that we're afraid of it. Uh, and we're afraid of it because it's not controllable. We Americans are really good on control. We're the um, uh, people who conquered the continent, or some might say raped the continent. But anyway, the, the, the pioneer, can-do, entrepreneur, uh, I am the master of my fate, spirit, that's the American myth that we all believe in. Manifest destiny. And, 
manifest destiny. This is who we are as a, as a people. And one thing about death is it doesn't listen to that argument. You don't get to win that one. You don't get to control that piece. And I think that's one reason that Americans in particular have tended to scramble from thinking about it so that they do take that fourth-line chemotherapy or they do go on the ventilator and dialysis, even though they know that there's a 3% chance that they come off and survive, because that's who we are. And death kind of challenges that. It says, okay, but, the, but my advice to people is then, We'll take that manifest destiny. I will be in, in charge of my own life and apply it to your dying and plan and make it the way you can, that you want it to be. Part of that is the advanced directors we talked about. Part of that is communicating with other people. And part of that is thinking a little bit about what it might feel like to experience that fear and then face it a little bit. That's what I think the value of the emotional exercises are, um, is that if you grieve a little bit, if you're shocked a little bit now, that maybe it isn't so shocking when it really happens. You know, you mentioned the advance directive, and I remember uh, uh, not long before my mother's death, she actually had a will and, and had things pretty mm -hmm. well planned out. But she told uh, me and my sister that she didn't have a will. She thought it'd be a lot more fun if uh, my sister and I just fought everything out. <laughs> well, how did that work out? <laughs> she she you had still that. Talk to your sister? Oh yeah, we we still <laughs> talk. Um, it, that that's just typical of my mother's sense of humor. And in in reality, she actually had things pretty well planned out. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And it went um, as as well as can be expected, uh, but in um, you mentioned also, and I'm glad you brought up the chaplain because I did want to ask a little bit about um, religion and spirituality, um, and and whether or not it's true that there uh, are no atheists in foxholes. Um, uh, looks like it's probably not true, um, although the um uh, when I talk with the chaplains, uh, they uh, say that they're, it's not atheism. It's not, um, that's not the point, is that there is no non-spiritual in, in foxholes. That when you're face-to-face -face with your death, the questions of the ultimate do pop up. And I have um, uh, one, one acquaintance, one chaplain who told me, that a lot of the people who, who he counseled or worked with who claimed that they were atheists may or may not have really been atheists, but what they really were is they were mad. They were angry because of some hurt that was suffered at the hands of some religious figure early in their lives, along the way, um, and they just never got over that. And that... Um, uh, was informative uh, to them. Uh, so the spiritual is essential. Um, the and 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 this is one of those. Believe it or not, the U.S. government actually agrees with this. Um, when the Medicare hospice program was enacted back in the 1980s under President Reagan, it included a list of what hospices had to do 
And each hospice patient, each patient who enrolls in hospice is assigned a chaplain, a spiritual care coordinator. Um, they can reject it. They don't have to talk to them if they don't want to, but each one has to be contacted by uh, the chaplain and at least have an assessment of what are the needs, what are their needs. And, the, and those needs are those deep meaning needs. What was it all about? Did I make a difference? What happens after I die? Um, was I good enough? Uh, you know, am I, I going to go to hell? Uh, these are these are not easy questions, um, and it's essential. Uh, so, so I would say, and sometimes that can be approached uh, from an atheistic uh, uh, standpoint. I have a friend who's um, uh, the director of um, uh, chaplaincy services at the Cleveland Clinic, and. I asked her in, in an interview um, uh, when I was working on this book um, if she had because she has a you know a, multiple Christian chaplains and Catholics and Protestants and Jewish and Buddhists and and Sikh and various sundry um, chaplains on on staff and I asked her do you have an atheist chaplain she says I would love to have an atheist chaplain because there are issues that can be dealt with in the spiritual realm without a god. She says the reason you can't get an atheist chaplain is there's no certifying board because they don't, they don't have <laughs> such a thing. Yeah, that's like uh, libertarians and fundraising. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's um, one of the things that that I, I I couldn't help thinking about is this this idea that there's um, there's some business that needs to be finished before someone dies. And what I, I guess I have two questions. What happens when you have situations like we've seen because of uh, the, the current pandemic with, oh, with people geez. being, um, you know, uh, uh, um, quarantined in, yeah. in uh, hospice? And the other thing is, what is the the business or the duties of the support? You know, the the Yo. members of the family and and the people that are being left behind. Well, those are those are great questions, Tom. Well, the the pandemic, um, in one way, is no different than any other disease. You get it. You might. You most of the time you get over it, but sometimes you don't. Um, and sometimes you die from it. But the thing that is different is exactly what you said, is when you die from COVID, you die alone. When you are sick from COVID, you are sick by yourself because this whole, this whole whether you're in the hospital, uh, even if you're in your own home, who's your caregiver? I mean, traditionally, um, uh, hospices rely on family members to be caregivers. But do you really want your daughter, who's got two um, uh, elementary school kids, to be your caregiver and risk getting infected from you? Uh, uh, those, those are very difficult, very difficult questions that COVID has, has brought up. And not only just in, inhibiting the ability to, to, quote, get your work done, but just being safe and a responsible person. And I suspect that a fair number of people are sacrificing their own work to um, 
you know, when my wife and I have t- had this conversation, and and general, obviously, you never know what you're going to do until you're there. Um, have talked about since we have our own home. That's just the two of us. We're both retired doctors, and we've decided we'll take care of each other. We'll do it, but that eliminates a whole lot of other people. Does that mean my grandkids can't come and see us? That's that's gigantic. Um, so what is the job of the support and, and, and family? I would say that there are two things. Um, one is with related to the advanced directives. So if you are a surrogate decision maker for your mom or your aunt or your husband or whoever it, it is, you do have a job, and it's it's actually laid out in most advanced directive documents, although people don't tend to, to, to read all those things. But your job is to make choices that the dying one once made, would, would want to have made. Your job is not to choose what you want done. And that's actually a, a liberating thing. Um, when, when, um, so I, I've used this example that if, if I'm my mom's uh, decision maker, um, uh, I'm actually not my sister is, but that's okay, uh, my mom's decision maker, and she ends up in the emergency room, and the ER doctor says, so what do you want us to do? Um, meaning, do you want us to put her in the ICU on the ventilator, or do you just want us to let her keep comfortable and die? Well, I, you know, I haven't been the perfect son. There have been some times that I've done some things that I never told my mom about, and she would be very disappointed in me if, if, if she knew. Um, and I've got some guilt going on right now, and I'm just not sure that I'm ready for my mom to, to go. And, and because I, I, maybe have, I maybe have some stuff that needs to be done. Uh, and now you're asking me if I want to kill my mom? I mean, that's, this is not a very, very uh, positive experience. But if the question is, if your mom could tell, tell us what to do here, what would she say? Now I get to be the good boy. I get to be the good son who honors my mother by probably making the same decision I would have either way. So that's a liberating uh, point for uh, the surrogate is it's not about you. It's about them and honoring them. But it's also a job and says, okay, sometimes I'm going to dis- I disagree with what my mom told me, but I have to do what my mom says anyway. So that's, that's job number one. Job number two the best I saw of this was a bumper sticker, which said, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> the job of a support person is presence. Um, it's not to provide answers. It's the, the, there may be a jillion questions that a dying person has, but they really don't want your opinion. They, they're often bigger questions. I mean, maybe they want your opinion, like, do you think maybe I'm strong enough to go, you know, to go to the bathroom by myself, or should you, should you bring me the bedpan? Okay, maybe that's, that's an opinion you can, you can offer. But the big questions are their own questions, and people have to, in general, figure them out for themselves with, with help of, of, of people who know their, their way around. What do we, what allow do we, people, what do we say to um, very young children? 
uh, grandchildren wow. yeah. and so on. So you got you got to know your kids and you got to know your your grandchildren, but absolutely positively don't lie to them, because that's the the absolute worst thing. Um, the uh, <laughs> this is a cartoon in today's paper in Cleveland. I don't know if it's you know I I still read newspapers. Um, this shows uh, uh, um, uh, a man who who's talking to somebody else, and there's uh, a little child there with a goldfish in a bowl, belly up. And the man tells his friend, I bought a goldfish that was already dead so that I didn't have to have a difficult conversation and lie to him in the future. And I, I thought, <laughs> I, 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 I loved that. Um, uh, the, um, there, there are people who really know this. Uh, the, the pediatric uh, hospice folks are really good. And the bereavement coordinator folks with hospice are really good professionals as far as knowing how do you work with with kids and each child is different i mean a two-year-old understands things very differently than a 13-year-old um and they both have their own all their own uh, problems but absolutely figure out a way within that child's frame of reference to tell them what's what's uh, tell them what's happening uh, should you take the child to the funeral or the viewing or not? Depends on the child. Don't make it about you. Make it about the child and ask them. Do you want to go? Do you not want to go? Do you know what it's going to be like? Um, uh, that's, that's true from uh, being, in, you know, being with uh, dying people. Uh, sometimes it's very scary. Sometimes that's an image they don't want to remember. You have to really take it a child at a time. I'm, that's not telling you. That's not telling you anything. I, I that's a long-winded non-answer. Well, what do you do with kids? Yeah. My my guest is Dr. Jeff Spees, the author of Dying with Ease: A Compassionate Guide for Making Wiser End of Life Decisions. And Jeff, I want to thank you for spending this time with me this morning. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. Dying with Ease. But uh, do you have a website? I do. I do have a website. It's uh, drjeffspees.com, and those are all all small letters, D-R-J-E-F-F-S-P-I-E-S-S, no spaces, dot com. Um, and there, my blog, there's a link to description of the book and um, links to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and everybody else. Um, and also the... Uh, the, the contact me link will get you directly to my my email inbox, and I'm very happy uh, to address what people might have as as questions. Ask it's it's good. I'm more than happy. Well, Jeff, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure talking about um, a a topic that a lot of us uh, uh, really don't like to talk about, but should. It's been a delight, Tom, and thanks for thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Thanks. That was uh, Dr. Jeff Spies, the author of Dying with Ease, a Compassionate Guide for Making Wiser End-of-Life Decisions. He has spent his uh, medical career with people facing serious illness and death, first as an oncologist, then as a hospice physician. And uh, we're going to take a short break, but we've got lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead, so 
Stay tuned. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and Start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman Steady Sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman Sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickerson. <laughs> After seven years of cycloid insomnia, or slugger's disease, John Bickerson had finally consented to allow Dr. Hershey to relieve his condition. In room 113 at the General Hospital, Mrs. Bickerson watches anxiously as a surgical nurse ministers to poor John, who is suffering an attack the night before the operation. Listen. Oh, it's like being married to a steam shovel nurse. Cough's normal. Enjoy yourself, dear. <sighs> Dr. Hershey's waiting for you in the corridor, Mrs. Bickerson. Oh, hello, doctor. Is he resting? I gave him a sedative that'll quiet him down. Well, he isn't very quiet. Oh, well, actually, I could have done the operation in my office. It's so trivial. I won't be in surgery over 15 minutes, and there's absolutely no danger whatsoever. Will it hurt him? Not the slightest. All we do is take a stitch in his palate and shorten his uvula. I hate to bring this up now, Dr. Hershey, but how much will it cost? The fee will be $50 with the anesthetic. How much is it without the anesthetic? <laughs> I would say about $40. Would there be any discomfort if he didn't have an anesthetic? Not for me, there wouldn't. I wouldn't advise the operation without it. And you're sure he'll be cured when you're through? Oh, practically certain. Well, it's almost midnight now. I'll do his case first thing about seven. He just needs a good night's rest. Well, I'll just stay a little longer. Good night. Call the floor nurse if you need anything. Oh, I will. I hope that pill's quieted him down. I'm sure that isn't doing him any good. John! John, wake up! What? What's the matter, Blanche? Uh, what's the matter, huh? I put the cat out, I locked the windows, I left a note for the milkman, and I, and I hung up... John, uh, we're in the hospital. What for? Is somebody sick? No, you're going to have an operation. Dr. Hershey's going to shorten your uvula in the morning. Well, then what did you wake me up now for? Well, you were snoring, and I was afraid you'd wear it off before you got a chance to operate. You've been snoring steadily for three hours. Don't you suppose I want to sleep too? You're not sleeping here, are you? Yes, I am. It costs another $5 to put another cart in the room. I... And I intend to use it. I can't get one night's sleep. Where's my nightgown? Not even in the hospital. I don't understand why you have to have an operation to cure your snoring. I didn't want it. You've been working on me for seven years to do this. I'm beginning to think it was a waste of money. I could have used that $40. I'm still walking around in a short dress. What are you going on about? Tomorrow I'll be walking around with a short uvula. Don't be so crabby. I'm not crabby. I'm just sleepy. Why don't you stop fiddling with that mirror and put out the lights? I have to get undressed, don't I? Well, take your dress off. Why are you plucking your eyebrows at this time of night? I'm not plucking my eyebrows. I'm taking off my false eyelashes. False eyelashes? I didn't even know you had bald eyelids. My eyelids are not bald. 
It's just that my lashes are short, and they don't bring out my eyes. Lots of women use false eyelashes. Well, throw them away. You don't need anything to bring out your eyes. Really? Really. I'm satisfied with the way they bulge now. What kind of a remark is that? Oh, hurry up, Blanche. I'm groggy. Blanche, what on earth are you taking out of your hair? It's a rat. A what? A roll of false hair. I have to wear it for the new hairstyles. My own hair is too thin with a pompadour. Oh, darn it, I can't get out of this dress. Blanche, what are those things? <laughs> silly. Haven't you ever seen shoulder pads before? Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. Your eyelashes are on the dresser, your hair is in the drawer, and your shoulders are on the chairs. What about it? That's you all over, Blanche. No one can think of more ways to spend money. Are you ready for bed now? Yes, dear. I'm ready for bed. Shall I crank yours up a little? No, put out the lights. Oh, I wanted to glance at the paper first. You go ahead and go to sleep. I can't sleep with the lights on. I left my sleep shade at home. Well, I won't be a minute. No one would believe this. In six hours, they're going to carve me to pieces. I'm supposed to rest, and here I'm... Shh! I can't concentrate with you mumbling. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of activity in Washington. What's all this tax reduction talk? Talk. Listen to what's... Blanche, I read the paper, every word of it. Read it to yourself. Don't be so disagreeable. Dr. Hershey told me to keep you occupied so you wouldn't think about the operation. All I'm thinking about is sleep. Oh, that's a good boy. You mustn't get nervous. No. I see the stock market is going up. That's fine. We have some stock, haven't we? Didn't you get some stock last year? Ten shares. Kentucky Salt Petermann's preferred stock. My brother got you in on the ground floor, didn't he? Where is that now? In the ground. I can't even find it listed on the stock page. Look in the help wanted column. Are you getting relaxed, dear? No, now I'm starting to get nervous. I'm worried about you, John. If anything happened to you on the operating table, it would all be my fault. So... You know what I think? We'll, uh, sneak out, huh? No. I think you should make out a will. Make out a will? I thought you were worried about me. Well, you don't want to leave me at the mercies of all those grasping relatives of yours, do you? The minute you drop dead, they'll... Don't talk like that. Can't you say pass on or something like that? Well, you always say drop dead. That's only when I'm talking to your brother. You could be a little more delicate when you're discussing wills. Why? Because you make it sound like I'm going to go any minute. Well, they don't give you two weeks' notice, you know. Every man should make out a will. Okay, I'll make it out tomorrow. You say it, but you won't do it. Get up now. Do it now. What? Go on, get up, and make out a will. Well, you're out of your mind. In the first place, a will isn't legal unless you have two witnesses. And in second place, I haven't got anything to leave in the first place. Nobody is going to take anything, and I don't need a will. You are the most stubborn man that ever lived, John. Why? Why am I stubborn? It's the hardest thing in the world to make you admit I'm right when you know I'm wrong. There's a woman's logic for you. Suppose I do make out a will, and nobody can touch anything besides you. Okay, so now... You've got it all, my worldly goods. First thing you know, you'll get over your grief, marry a guy without a dollar to his name like that broken-down snore specialist, Dr. Hershey. Oh, I'm not going to marry anybody. 
He'll give up his practice, take you for every penny, my hard-earned money. He'll drive around my brand-new car, drink my bourbon, <laughs> loaf around like the French, never do a day's work. Why don't you make the bum get a job, Blanche? And then screaming like that. Push up and go to sleep. Go to sleep, she tells me. I'm a nervous wreck. She practically walks me into a funeral. Mary's a doctor behind my back. Now she tells me to go to sleep. <sighs> I'll never sleep another wink as long as I... John, the telephone. The telephone. Answer no. it! No. Who, who the dickens is calling? Who moved the phone, Blanche? What'd you get up for? It's right on the night table beside your bed. I thought I was... Uh... Hello? Mrs. Renesis? This is your maternity nurse. You can get ready now. I'm bringing your baby in. What? Blanche, how long have I been here? Isn't he 413? I don't know what this is, but I'm not feeding any babies. A way to run a hospital. It's just a mistake, John. No, I shouldn't have fallen for this operation deal. I could be so comfortable at home in my own bed. One of us should have stayed there. What for? How do you know a prowler won't break in? I left a whole bottle of bourbon on the dresser. Nobody will break turkey would gobble and scare him away. The turkey would gobble? I can just see... Turkey? What turkey? Well, I was going to surprise you. I won a turkey in a raffle, John. You've got a live turkey running around the house? He isn't running around. I've got him tied to your bed. On my bed? What'd you do that for? I'll have the whole thing full of feathers. What'll we do with a live turkey? Well, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, John, and I thought you'd murder him for dinner. I'm not going to murder any turkeys. But if he lays a beak on my bourbon, I'll chop his head off. Blanche, you're the most impossible woman that ever lived. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I guess everything I do is wrong. I'll go home and put the turkey out. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Never mind. I didn't mean to holler. Let's go to sleep so I can feel good for the operation. I don't think I want you to have it. What's the least I can do for you? Kept you awake all these years with my snoring, and when Dr. Hershey gets through with me, I'll be as quiet as a mouse. But if you stop snoring, I'll never wake you up, will I? No. And if I don't wake you up, we won't fight, will we? That's right. Well, that settles it. I'm not going to let him operate, John. Why not? It's the only chance I get to talk to you. Come on, we're going home. I give up.
Alexander Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 